Hopelessness is alive and well in America today. It is alive and well in some of our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow students. It's found in some of our marriages, in our families, in our children. Yes, even believers suffer from it. I know. I counsel some of them. The symptoms are obvious and unmistakable in our culture. Suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Over 45,000 people will take their own lives in our country this year. That's more than 123 each and every day. Hopelessness and despair result in the abuse of drugs and alcohol, in broken marriages, in destroyed relationships, in estranged children, just to name a few of the impacts. Yet despite all this, I contend, and the Bible confirms, that God's people have hope. Before we come to our text of Scripture this morning, which is Exodus chapters 1 and 2, you can turn there if you'd like, I want to relate a story told by James DeLoach, senior pastor of the Second Baptist Church of Houston, about a painting he came across a number of years ago. The painting depicted an old burned-out mountain shack. After the fire, the family's sole-valued possession, their home, was destroyed, and only the chimney remained. In front of the devastated home stood an old man, dressed in his underclothes. With him was a small boy by his side. It was evident by the boy's distressed face in the painting that he had been crying. At the bottom of the painting, the artist added a caption with the words the old man was saying to the boy. This simple sentence described the man's faith and hope for the future despite the dire circumstances. It said, Hush, child, God isn't dead. God isn't dead. Well, Exodus 1 and 2 make it very clear that the people of Israel, despite generation after generation after generation of affliction and oppression at the hands of the Egyptians, that despite the most ruthless and bitter slavery that would generate despair and hopelessness for any people, that God wasn't dead and there was reason for hope. In fact, even though God's people didn't know it, God had been sovereignly preparing to save His people from Egypt for decades and decades, even centuries before they even cried out to the Lord for help. Five points in my sermon this morning. Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we think they're pretty familiar to us. As you study them, you learn more and more about God's great provision, great hope, great salvation for His people. Five points. Point one, God caused Israel to multiply in Egypt. That's chapter one. All of it. There's three different stories, but they're all making the same point. God multiplied His people in Egypt. Secondly, God brings forth and protects His deliverer. 
Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Third point, Moses is rejected by his own people. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And fourth, Moses delivers the seven daughters of Midian. Chapter 2, verses 16 to 22. And then fifth and last, God hears the cries of his people. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Point number one. God causes Israel to multiply in Egypt. The first story is found in Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7. Follow along with me as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. In verses 1 to 5, we have 13 names. Jacob or Israel is the same name for the same person, Jacob or Israel, and his 12 sons. Why do we start out with twelve na- with 13 names? Because God's people are important to Him, and these particular people are most important to Him. Not only do they matter to Him, but the book of Exodus starts this way to make clear that God is careful to keep His promises to the people that matter to Him. This is right after the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, promises have been given by God. Jacob has been given promises. He's been given the same promises that were given to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. Abraham, the father of Israel. Well, what are those promises? Well, those promises we call the Abrahamic covenant, the promises given to Abraham. And they are key to understanding Exodus 1 and 2. In fact, they're key to understanding the Old Testament In fact, they're key to understanding the New Testament. For Paul talks about it in Romans and Galatians as so very, very important to our understanding of who Christ is and what He has done. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 briefly. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram was a pagan in a foreign land near what today we would call the country of Iraq. He was a pagan. He was not a believer. But God reached out and called Abram to himself. And he gives Abram promises in verses 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation or a great people. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Two key promises here. First in verse 2. First promise says... I will make of you a great nation, a great people. That's going to involve many descendants. 
Now, Abram, when he starts out, it's just him and his wife. And God's promised him many descendants to make a great nation. You know how long Abram waited to have his first child? Forty years. Forty years he waited. God was kind of slow about delivering his promise. And then to Isaac. Do you know how long it took Isaac to have Jacob? Another 45 years. 85 years for Abraham to have three descendants in the line of promise. God was sovereignly working to bring His promises about through Abraham, but maybe not on the timetable that either Abraham or Isaac or Jacob thought He would. The second of those promises is in verse 3. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just your descendants through Isaac and Jacob will be blessed through you, Abraham, but all of the world will be blessed through you. The promise of verse 2 is reinforced by God in Genesis 15 when He tells Abraham His descendants will be many, like the stars of heaven when you look into the night sky. Another key promise is found in chapter 15. Turn over there if you're in chapter 12 couple of pages to chapter 15. Let's go to verses 13 and 14. This promise relates directly to where we're at in Exodus 1 and 2. With the people of Israel in Egypt. Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be just sojourners in a land that is not there and will be servants there. This is where Israel is at in Exodus 1. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. They're afflicted a long time. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God says, you're going to be afflicted there, but you're not staying there. Eventually, I will fulfill my promise and bring you out and rescue you and deliver you. These promises of God provide the context for Exodus 1 and 2. Understanding these promises of God makes verse 7 so very important. Look back at Exodus 1 and verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God was growing Israel in the land of Egypt. He was turning them into this people, into this nation. The main point of this first story, of these first seven verses, is just that. God multiplied them Even after Jacob and all his sons are dead, the people of Israel is growing in numbers and strength, fulfilling the promise that God had given to Abraham. Notice, however, that God's name isn't mentioned in these first seven verses. Matter of fact, God's name won't even be mentioned until we get towards the end of chapter 1. Let's turn to our second story. It's found in verses 8 to 14 of chapter 1. And it involves a ruthless form of slavery imposed on the people of Israel. 
And it's designed to reverse, to halt, or at least slow down the growing number of Israelites. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for me. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now the main point of this second story is found there in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Verse 9 to 11 makes clear there are two reasons the king of Egypt afflicted the Israelites with slavery. First was national security. He's worried. He's worried there's so many Israelites that if a foreign power comes in, the Israelites will join up with them and defeat Pharaoh the king of Egypt. Secondly, there's an economic advantage to Egypt to having all this free labor building their store cities in these massive building projects. Archaeology has shown that during this time, many, many, many great things were built in Egypt. This was an advantage for Pharaoh and for Egypt. But notice the result. What was the result of their oppression? The Israelites continued to multiply. It had exactly the opposite effect of what Pharaoh intended. They grew and grew and grew. Lesson? You're not going to win with God. You're not going to stop His plan. You're not going to stop His purpose. It will be accomplished despite the the schemes of men. Well, what's the response of Pharaoh to this? Well, he doubles down. Verses 13 and 14. This slavery that had been hard labor, well, in verse 13, now it becomes even more difficult. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Ruthless, bitter, hard slavery. But still, the Israelites multiplied. The third story of chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. Now Pharaoh implements a new and desperate strategy. A murderous solution to the ever-growing population of Israelite slaves in Egypt. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, 
If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why, do you, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Again, the main point, with all that's going on in this section, the main point is found in verse 20. Despite all of what, what Pharaoh tried to do with the midwives, to have them kill the male children, the people multiplied and grew very strong. Three times in chapter 1, God tells us in His Word, Israel multiplied and grew very strong. That, reputation, that repetition is making the point. God is behind this. He is providentially guiding events in such a fashion that the Israelites are responding to the oppression by having more and more children. God's promise is being fulfilled. They're being built into a great nation. Now, it's easy to get distracted by the midwives here. They're not the main point of this section of the story. But it is interesting. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have killed them. And the story they tell in verse 19, the text doesn't make clear whether it's true or whether it's just a story. But it's not the main point. The midwives feared God and they were rewarded for that. God looked after them. Well, in frustration because his midwife strategy wasn't working. Pharaoh comes up with a devastating solution in verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just the midwives now, because the midwife strategy failed. Now we've got to up the ante again. He basically deputizes every Egyptian to murder the male children of Israel, the male babies of Israel. So here we are at the end of chapter 1. It's a cliffhanger, isn't it? Pharaoh is trying to destroy Israel by destroying their male children. What's going to happen? What's next? Turn over to chapter 1. Or, sorry, turn over to chapter 2, verse 1. This, this section of Scripture, this story, is written masterfully. Now, it's God's holy word, that's true. But it doesn't matter. If it was just plain old literature, it's masterfully written. Okay? When you get to the end of chapter 1, there's tension in the air. You can cut it with a knife. 
God is telling us a very interesting story. It captures our imagination. So now you come to chapter 2, verse 1. Second major section. God brings forth and protects His deliverer. Follow along as I read. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. These are Hebrew parents of the tribe of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. That ought to send a chill down your spine. Because what's the fate of sons of Hebrews in Egypt? The death penalty. A death penalty. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, the tension just went up again. He's old enough now. He makes enough noise. You can't hide him anymore. Something's got to be done. Think of this mother. What is she doing? What is she thinking? What is she dealing with? She's got to do something. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. Interestingly, that word for basket is the same word for ark. Only used in Genesis 6 through 9 in the Bible and here. She made a basket. She made an ark. Certainly a smaller version of the ark but one that's designed again to deliver one through danger. She made a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now I imagine Moses' mother, we haven't been told his name yet, I would imagine Moses' mother did some planning. He'd watched Pharaoh. She probably watched Pharaoh's daughter. Where she went, what she did, where she might find Moses. Maybe she thought putting him in the river might make Pharaoh's daughter think the gods of the river have delivered him to her. We're not told. But we do come to verses 5 and 6, and it's the climax of this little story in verses 1 to 10. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Get the tension rising again? While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Well, now you really wonder what's happening next. This was a movie. You'd be anticipating the next scene. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, 
take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. You see, the answer to the question that the cliffhanger at the end of chapter 1 is given. The God who has held Israel together through Exodus 1, who has grown them into a nation, will not let them disappear in the murder heap of history here in chapter 2. Now keep in mind, we're 80 years before God appears to Moses in the burning bush at this point. So God is working. He is working behind the scenes, unbeknownst to Israel, or at this point to Moses and his family, that he is working. Here we have the people of God trampled and beaten down. They are in the midst of the murder of baby boys by a tyrant. How can they have hope? This is bad. Chapter 2 answers that question. Here is the beginning of the chapter where we have one special little infant boy who is miraculously preserved. God's people can have hope because God's protecting and saving providence is present here. After all, this was a desperate scheme by his mother, wasn't it? Think of all that had to happen for this baby to live. The mother had to prepare a little boat and put it in the river, in the reeds, where Pharaoh's daughter would find it, and inside of Moses' sister. Pharaoh's daughter had to come to the river at exactly the right time and the right place. Pharaoh's daughter must be willing to keep the Hebrew baby for herself. Acts 7 tells us that Moses was a beautiful baby. Perhaps that helped. Cuteness is uh, pretty infectious for babies, isn't it? It's almost ironically humorous as you come to the end of this section. Pharaoh's daughter forsook her own father in letting the baby live and in adopting him. Moses' own mother gets to be his nurse. Matter of fact, Moses' own daughter, the text makes clear, gets paid for being his nurse. She's on the government dole. And then lastly, the child is raised under Pharaoh's protection, in Pharaoh's house, at Pharaoh's expense. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you almost you almost can hear God laughing at Pharaoh. You're taking care of the one who is going to deliver my people from you. The ones you're trying to kill. It's ironically humorous. Let's consider something else in light of all this. Notice there's no mention of God in this story at this point. He's actually conspicuous by his absence. It draws attention to the fact that he's not explicitly here. 
He's not directly intervening in affairs. But his providence is working behind the scenes. And baby Moses is spared by this delightful providence, this happy providence of God. Think of how Moses' mother and father must have felt. They were thrilled. But what's going on around them? What's going on around them? For doubtless there were many Hebrew boys that were not spared, but rather were murdered. Many grieving parents amongst the Israelites. Notice that God did not specifically save all Hebrew boys. But he saved the one who would be the savior of his people. You can't help but think this foreshadows what happens to the baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, we find a description of the murder of many, many Hebrew infant sons in Bethlehem. All males under the age of two years old by the hand of Herod who was seeking to kill the infant Messiah of the Jews. But baby Jesus was saved. He was protected. He was delivered. Even Jesus in His earthly ministry, He didn't heal everybody. The man at the pool, He just saved the man. Healed him. Jesus didn't heal everybody. He was selective. He was making a point. You see, sin is still present in the world. Still, sin is still brings evil and horror and, and damages this world so much. It's still present. But God is raising up a Savior to deliver them. But there is a frowning providence or a mysterious providence amongst those who lost their sons. But they were still part of God's people that he was delivering. God preserves Moses, this one baby boy, who will deliver the entire people of God from Egypt, from slavery. Maybe this helps us see what God's promises really is. He does not promise that his people or his children will never suffer but that no suffering will eradicate his people or annul his promises. God's providence does not always keep the church from her fears. But he promises to deliver us through our fears. Jesus said the gates of hell will not stand against it. God does not promise we will never physically die in service to him or for the advancement of his kingdom. But God does promise redemption and eternal life for those who by faith in him have a certain and sure hope. And it is in this that we as God's people have hope. You won't have your best life now, as Pat likes to say. But you will. You will. Doesn't mean God doesn't bring blessing in this life. He does. But that's not what the New Testament or the Old Testament looks forward to. Well, point C. Moses is rejected by his own people. Chapter 2. 
Verse 11 to 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to, to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of his people, we're told Moses is 40 years old here in the book of Acts. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Remember, he sat down by a well. We'll come back to that. But here we see Moses. Acts 7 tells us he was moved by a sympathy for his people. He was moved to action for his people in verse 12. And then he's rejected by his people in verses 13 and 14. Verse 11 makes clear Moses knew he was a Hebrew. He knew he was not truly an Egyptian. He knew who he was. And he embraced it. And he's acting on it. Some make Moses out to be a murderer in verses 11 and 12. That is not the case. Rather, he is a man who stands for justice. When he looks around for help to rescue his Hebrew brother, he finds none. So he takes matters into his own hands in order to preserve the life of the man being beaten. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 in your Bibles, or if you don't want to, I'll read it to you. Acts chapter 7 gives us a little more insight into this. Stephen the martyr is reciting the history of Israel before he's about to be stoned. God records his words in the scripture. Here's what he says. Acts 7 verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses was not just rescuing an Israelite slave. He was intending to deliver his people, to save them. As a matter of fact, turn over to verse 35 of chapter 7. We find a little more about Moses. It's great when the New Testament interprets the Old for us, isn't it? Helps us understand. Verse, chapter 7, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. God sent him as redeemer for Israel. Exodus 15, after they've left Egypt, after they've crossed the Red Sea, God says He redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Moses is a type of Christ. He is a redeemer for Israel. 
Here we see Moses anticipating the rejection of Jesus Christ by his people, which they do. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, wishes they would come to him, but they will not. My fourth point. Moses delivers the seven daughters of Midian. Chapter 2, verses 16 to 22. This section picks up Moses right where we left him at the end of verse 15. Exiled from Egypt, rejected by the Egyptians and the Jews, and he's sitting by a well in the Sinai Desert. Verse 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Notice that. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Well, Moses here moves from being a rejected deliverer by the Hebrews in verses 11 to 15 to being a righteous deliverer, bringing justice to the seven intimidated young ladies at the well at Midian. He is rejected by the Jews. But yet Moses saves the Gentiles. Sound familiar? Moses will spend the next 40 years of his life, seemingly the prime of his life, living in the desert with his new wife and family. You might say, what a waste. Think of the fantastic potential that Moses had. He was in Pharaoh's house. He had been educated in the finest of schools. He had been given the greatest of physical training in Pharaoh's house and under his tutelage. He could have had a great impact for the Jews as a member of the higher class in Egypt, right? God didn't think so. God thought he needed to go to Midian and spend 40 years there. Well, it's not a waste, not in the least. For this too is part of God's preparation of Moses. Moses just doesn't know it yet. Consider the fact that years later, in the great exodus from Egypt, Moses would lead Israel through where? Through the Sinai Desert. The very place he is now living in and comes to know like the back of his hand. Consider that his disappointment and exile as a result of that. His father-in-law, Ruel, later called Jethro, in Exodus 18, comes to trust the one true God of Israel comes to believe. Consider that Moses' disappointment and exile, he moved from a life of privilege to a life of hardship, to an easy life, to a struggling life. Probably lived in persistent poverty, as many do in the desert. 
He came to understand the sufferings of His people. God was preparing him. Preparing him so he could help a suffering people. Now for our fifth point. God hears the cries of his people. Verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2. During those those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the climax of the first two chapters of Exodus. Here we have a final reason for God's people to hope. God never abandons His promises. In these verses, God's people turned to God for help. They're not wishing for a change of administration, for a new Pharaoh to come about, to all the other false saviors they could find. They're calling out to God for help. They need rescue. They know it. They're in misery. They're suffering. They need God's help. They cry out to Him, and God heard, and God saw, and God knew, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God never abandons His promises. His promises to redeem His people from the bondage of slavery. His promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. A promise fulfilled in the Hebrew Jesus Christ, the son of David. Exodus 1 and 2 are saying to Israel and to us, Your hope is not in the death of Pharaoh or in anything else in this world, but in the promises of God. Our hope is not in some lucky change in our circumstances. Often it is only when our faith, or rather only when our false hopes fail us, that we turn to God, that we look to Him. For in the end, when everything is stripped down to the bare essentials, when all the false false hope of this world are stripped away, as Christians, we must remind ourselves, our hope is not in ourselves, but our only hope is in Christ, our true and ultimate Redeemer. Ephesians 2 verse 12 reminds us that apart from Jesus Christ, we are without hope and without God in the world. Thankfully, God has not left us without hope. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 reminds us that according to His great mercy, Pat just preached on this, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is a living hope. He sits at the right hand of the Father this morning interceding for us. Let's conclude this sermon and prepare ourselves for communion by seeing that Moses also looked to and anticipated the coming of the Christ.
of the promised one of Israel. Hebrews 11 says this regarding Moses and Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, that is, the sufferings of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. At God's command, Moses told the people of Israel to put the blood of the lambs over the doors of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over them. Ironic, isn't it? Pharaoh was trying to kill all the male children of Israel. What is the judgment of the tenth plague? All the firstborn sons in Egypt. Their lives are taken. But not those of the Hebrews. They are protected by the blood. In Christ, our true Passover lamb, God's people truly do have hope. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are a great and wonderful God. Father, we take you so for granted. We lose sight of what you are doing. Even we as Christians now, almost 2,000 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, forget, Lord, that you are sovereignly and providentially guiding the events of our lives, of your church, and of this world. And that we can hope in that. And hope in Jesus Christ. Pray as we partake of these elements this morning, that we would remember Jesus Christ, our only hope. In his name I pray. Amen.